Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. My turn to give you guys another update on ventricular arrhythmias and prevention of sudden cardiac death, 2019. So last year, we reviewed a lot of the guidelines in the most recent document put out by the AHA, ACC, and Heart Rhythm uh, Societies on prevention of sudden cardiac death and ventricular arrhythmias. And just to summarize what we talked about last year, the major updates in this document were inclusion of adult congenital heart disease, very important change, and, and um, especially specific recommendations about specific heart lesions like Tetralogy of Fallot. This document for the first time included information on shared decision-making, especially around um, implantation of uh, ICDs. It included end-of-life discussions, including when do we want to turn off ICDs. Um, it talked about cardiac autopsies and those who died and getting genetic testing um, when you don't know the etiology um, of the, the sudden death. And we, it also brought up the issue of screening all first-degree relatives um, of those who've had sudden cardiac death less than age 40, all important points. So just to talk about another lesion, I thought I'd bring this up before Dr. Lever's talk. Um, uh, one thing we didn't talk in detail about last year was hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the new guidelines regarding prevention of sudden death. Uh, so the first recommendation we have is that risk stratification for sudden death should be performed at your initial evaluation and then at every evaluation thereafter. The second class one recommendation was that in those who survived a sudden cardiac arrest due to VT or VF, um, or have syncope that you worry was caused by a ventricular arrhythmia, then an ICD is, rem uh, is recommended if they're going to live longer than one year and have a good quality of life. Uh, another class recommendation regarding this disorder, first-degree relatives of those who have this disease um, should get their ECG and echocardiogram performed, which is their screening for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And finally, the, the um, last class one recommendation was that first-degree relatives of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who um, should have genetic screening if you know the mutation. And that can be mutation-specific. Class 2A recommendations, meaning you probably should do this, but it's not as strong evidence as a class 1 or a strong recommendation, are that um, patients with suspected or diagnosed hypertrophic cardiomyopathy um, should be counseled about the option for genetic testing. And the other 2A recommendations from this document are that if you have a risk factor for sudden death, um, an ICD is reasonable. Um, if you have more than one year life expectancy and good quality of life. And so the risk factors identified that were high, uh, if you just need one of these to be considered high risk, that's maximum LV wall thickness in an adult of 30 millimeters in any wall of the vent left ventricle. Uh, if you've had sudden cardiac death in a um, first degree relative uh, under age 40, and if you've had unexplained syncope, worrisome syncope in the prior six months. The final 2A recommendation from this document was patients who have spontaneous uh, non-sustained VT or an abnormal blood pressure response with exercise also have additional risk factors, and you can consider these as additive to the, um, the really more class one indications for a defibrillator. Um, 
2B recommendations, so this was a little bit of a change from prior documents, that if you have uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and non-sustained VT um, or an abnormal blood pressure response to exercise but don't have any other risk met, um, um, factors for sudden death, ICD can be considered, but it's really not, um, not indicated at the level of a class 1 or 2A recommendation. So this was a change from the prior guidelines that said that any non-sustained VT was a risk factor enough to put a defibrillator in. Uh, the second uh, class 2B recommendation was that if you have sustained VT, um, you can consider amiodarone, but this really was um, low level of evidence, and you probably shouldn't do this in most cases. And finally, the two class 3 recommendations for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy were um, that you shouldn't do an invasive EP study for risk stratification for sudden death. And um, if you have a genotype positive patient but no phenotype of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you should not put in a defibrillator. So new evidence since 2017? Well, there's um, a recent paper published by Barry Marin and his group. Um, a couple of centers have a prospective registry, and this will probably affect the new guidelines uh, when they're revised about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So the major risk factors still identified from this registry are a family history of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy-related sudden death in a young relative, first degree, unexplained syncope, and massive LVH, meaning a wall thickness of 30 millimeters or close or greater. Um, probable, the new major risk factor is not just one episode of non-sustained VT, but if you have multiple and repetitive episodes of non-sustained VT, this is still a uh, um, high risk factor for sudden death. Added to the list, um, LV apical aneurysm, that rare, you know, relatively rare form of um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, these patients seem particularly high risk for sudden death events. And finally, MRI is helping us risk stratify. So looking for that late gadolinium enhancement, um, meaning scar in the ventricle, is becoming an important um, risk factor for events of sudden cardiac death. So cutoff, people use anywhere from 15 to 20% as high risk. And finally, those who have end-stage hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, meaning when you've gone beyond your hyperdynamic or normal function, and now you're starting to get into the dilated or um, part of the disease, phase of the disease where you have decreased ejection fraction, then you're high risk for a sudden death event. In this paper, um, other potential risk modifiers identified were still the hypotensive response to exercise testing, marked LVOT uh, obstruction at rest, so more than grading a 50, and um, those who've had alcohol septal ablation are high risk for events, and if you make it to age 60, you're probably low risk. Um, and this paper argued for anyone with one risk factor or more um, high enough risk for a defibrillator. So interestingly enough, just within the last two months, there have been two papers published on uh, risk for sudden cardiac death in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in kids. So um, both of these papers are impressed, and I'll, I'll tell you what they showed. So the, the bottom line is the risk factors for sudden cardiac death in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are probably different in children. So the first study I'll tell you about uh, was published this month by Balaji et al. in um, Heart Rhythm Journal. Um, we were one of the center's P-disease contributed patients here. So this was a retrospective study um, looking at, at patients less than 21 years of age, and the follow-up was about five years. 
35 centers were included in six countries. Um, they had 152 children who had appropriate ICDs or were known to have ICDs for secondary prevention of sudden death. Um, they also had 294 children who had a primary prevention ICD but had no um, appropriate therapies during the follow-up. And the, the, they identified septal thickness separate from posterior wall thickness um, lower LVOT gradient, and a Q wave in your ECG in the inferior leads as being risk factors for appropriate shocks. Um, so the factors they said were not significant in their study were family history of sudden cardiac death, a drop in your blood pressure with exercise testing, or VT on ambulatory monitoring. Again, this is a single retrospective study with its limitations. Probably young patients with, um, with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy without a family history represent novel mutations and potentially multigenic mutations. This study did not include any MRI data. They had limited ambulatory monitoring data, and um, these were patients who already had ICDs, so we're not talking about them. a lot of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy who weren't treated um, with device therapy. Now, in contrast to this, a study that is also preprint um, was recently published um, in JAMA Cardiology from Europe. Um, this study included uh, 39 centers in 17 countries, and the age was 16 years or younger. They had 1,000, just over 1,000 patients um, for follow-up, and they were mostly male, as in the other study, and their median follow-up was 5.3 years, again, retrospective. They use the same endpoints of the study, so either death or an appropriate shock on their ICD. They found that ma maximal wall thickness was a risk factor for death. Left atrial diameter was a risk factor, so that's something that the European Society guidelines um, have written in the adult hypertrophic cardiomyopathy guidelines as a risk factor for sudden death. We have not included that in the U.S. guidelines. They, they said unexplained fainting, so worrisome fainting was a risk factor. and. Um, they identified a high LVOT gradient as a risk factor, which is opposite to the U.S. study. And they also identified that non-sustained VT on ambulatory, mod ambulatory monitoring was a risk factor. So they, those two um, contra are in um, contraindication of what we found in the U.S. study. So risk factors they said were not significant for events were the New York Heart or Ross classification, the family history, again, was not significant, so that's the same as the U.S. pediatric study. And they didn't, even, they didn't um, look at blood pressure response with exercise, MRI, um, LGE findings, or medications. And so, again, the same limitations of the first study I just said in children. Um, um, and just to point out, they used the left atrial diameter because they compared uh, the kids to the uh, European sudden death guidelines. So really, for risk stratification for sudden cardiac death in children with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, we, we need to learn more about this and get more data. So good news is for um, the whole population with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy from birth throughout adulthood, uh, outcomes are excellent. So this was also recently published last year in New England Journal of Medicine, a review paper by Dr. Marin showing that um, at the very bottom there is the rate of five-year, I'm sorry, annual and then five-year mortality. If you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's actually not much different at all from the general population. So ICDs work, and they're, they're, they're effective. Um, 
So why don't we put them in everybody? And the answer is risks and costs. So complications occur with ICDs. It's about 5% in transvenous devices, including infection, bleeding, or perforation. After the implant, you get inappropriate shocks, which can be a major complication. So studies have reported anywhere from 5 to 25% in adults of inappropriate shocks, and that can lead to PTSD. It, it hurts, and um, patients then become afraid that their device might go off at any moment and uh, be painful. They're expensive. You know, it's not one and done. You're going to need revisions of your, your generator and your leads. And in children, it has been associated with decreased quality of life, having an um, implanted device, um, not necessarily in adults. So why do we put these in? Well, it's argued that the burden of sudden cardiac death really is greater in young patients, so they have longer life expectancy. Um, also, a, a death of a child has a greater effect on their families and communities, so more of a shock wave goes through the, um, you know, it would go through Cleveland when the, the, the young woman just died in the marathon, for example. Um, the problems we are facing are this de decreased quality of life in our, our children with ICDs and the relatively high rate of inappropriate shocks. So what about the inappropriate shock rate? Well, in early series, it was up to 35% of young patients with congenital heart disease or or other um, you know, inherited cardiomyopathies or arrhythmias um, had inappropriate shocks, which is way too high. Adults were about 25%. Um, the other thing is you got a lot of follow-ups. If you have a device, you need to get it checked. And potentially, we used to, or we still often restrict kids from sports. However, I will tell you that in the last 10 years, this has really changed. So with programming changes, um, where we only give shocks for really fast ventricular fibrillation, we ignore the VT, um, along with beta blocker therapies, and um, use of these stronger ICD leads. So for a while, we were using these thinner leads. That, yeah, they were nice. They, they didn't um, block your vein as much, or, um, but they, they broke. Um, so now that we're going to the stronger, more sturdy leads, there's a much lower rate of um, lead failure. And um, the other thing we're doing is more decision-making around sports participation. So I really do think that uh, the inappropriate shock rate and the quality of life is going to go up for these patients. Um, what about the sub-Q ICD? Uh, we talked about this a little bit last year. The guidelines say that it's indicated for anyone who... Um, for sure, it's a class one recommendation if the patient needs an ICD but doesn't have vascular access or is high risk for um, endocardial infection, and there's no pacing indication. It's a 2A recommendation for those who meet criteria for an ICD and have no pacing indication, meaning you just want to put this device in instead of a transvenous. Um, the times you shouldn't put it in are those who need um, cardiac pacing. So um, this, to remind you, this is what they look like. The, the device in the center there is the, um, is the large device, um, uh, which bigger footprint because it has to give about 80 joules shock compared to the smaller um, transvenous devices, which go up to about 45 joules. So it's, most of the footprint is made up of battery. Um, and there was a a brand new in-press study looking at complications from sub-Q ICDs, which is interesting. Um, this is also not in paper yet, but um, the FDA has gotten smart, and now they mandate that any new device that's uh, approved needs to be followed for complications. We've had that for many years, but they're trying to beef up their registries. 
So this publication looked at six, um, 1,600 events reported to the FDA um, that were complications of a sub-QICD. 542 events were infections, 550 were inappropriate shocks, very high inappropriate shock rate. And there were 15 deaths due to failure to defibrillate, VF induced by the device, or complications of the implant. So the, the, in the early days of the sub-QICD, the inappropriate shock rate was 35% in adults, so very high, and that was largely because of um, that this device uses an ECG to detect VF, not EGM. And so if you had a change in your ECG with a disease state or exercise or some other physiologic change, it detected VF and gave you a shock. With the new screening of electrocardiograms before these are implanted, with positional changes and possibly exercise, the inappropriate shock rate has gone down to this database, reports about 7%. Um, so it, when you're looking at the complications, it's, I'm sorry, this is hard to read, but the majority here, 63% are inappropriate shocks, over-sensing in 14%, and I wasn't clear that that was, um, how that was different from inappropriate shocks. There were 5% of the complications were failure to fibrillate, and that's actually higher than endocardial devices. The device caused cardiac address, arrest in 3% of the complications, and then the other was 15%. And just looking at the causes of um, over-sensing, meaning causing inappropriate shocks, nearly half, we didn't know why, a lot. 32% were T-wave over-sensing. 8% um, were due to air in the pocket, which is unusual. You don't get that with a transvenous device. Myopotentials, so sometimes the devices um, detected the muscle in the chest wall and thought it was an ECG change and gave a shock. And, um, and so this is actually different and uh, all new types of complications that we don't see in endocardial devices. And so sub-QICD is not a cure-all for ICD-related problems in young patients or athletes. And again, the recommendation remains, don't put an ICD in for the sole reason that patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or other diseases can play sports. In theory, there's less risk to the damage, um, less risk to dam for damage to the device during sports, but that remains to be proven. And there's still a high rate of, um, of uh, inappropriate shocks with the sub-QICD. That coupled with the rate of um, high voltage lead failure going down in the endocardial devices really makes the equation um, difficult when we're considering what type of device to implant for high-risk patients. Um, inappropriate shock rate still is shock rate is still high with sub-QICDs. Um, we're still working on getting that worse, and the quality of life in general is lower for patients even with these devices. Um, so in summary, the guidelines that were from 2017 are still active. We don't have anything new published. Likely, the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy guidelines will be revised soon, and Dr. Um, Lever may, will probably talk more about uh, that disease and uh, other aspects. The risk factors for sudden cardiac death in children with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy differ from adults. And on the horizon, we have um, coming up in 2020 new guidelines on patients who had aborted sudden cardiac death, so meaning a workup of a patient who had an arrest, um, what, how we should work that up genetically and phenotype, to phenotype them. There's a new document for arrhythmias and pregnancy coming out soon, and um, more and more data will be coming about the, out about the sub-QICD in the near future, as well as comparisons to transvenous device. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash loveyourheartpodcast. podcast.